Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Well, I think secularism is the middle ground, really. Um, I mean, the you know, at, at the extremes of of the of the discussion about religion and politics are you know theocracy on the one hand uh, that says this you know this religion my religion is true um, it shouldn't just govern my life it should govern the life of the nation completely um, and should be enforced you know uh, throughout law and so on and so forth that's one sort of extreme and the other extreme I think well in some 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 ways it's the flip side of the coin but the other extreme in practice um, in relation to religion and politics is the sort of thing that uh, perhaps we see in uh, in North Korea today that we've seen, or China, that we've seen in the past in um, places like the Soviet Union or Albania or Cuba in the past, that says, you know, there can be no uh, involvement of uh, religion in social or political life. Religion ought to be, you know, stamped out. Um, religion is a, is a lie and, and materialistic atheism should be the doctrine of the state and the nation. And, you know, I think secularism says no to both those extremes um, and tries to create perhaps not a middle ground, but a common ground uh, where people who have equal citizenship in a shared nation, in a shared state, um, can pursue their own choices and freedom of religion or, or belief, but also will give respect to other people's uh, choices and not seek to use the state to impose their views um, on their fellow citizens in matters where they don't agree. So I think secularism, uh, within the terms of your question, actually does offer that middle ground. The rules of our morality are not the conclusions of our reason. The provocative words of Scottish philosopher, essayist and historian David Hume. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Does Europe need to open up to ideas on a secular state? And is religion a private matter? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to tackle those questions with Andrew Copson, the Chief Executive of Humanist UK, whose latest book, Secularism, Politics, Religion and Freedom, has just been published by Oxford University Press, where Andrew argues, even in a world of diversity, we need a framework for our common life. And most of us want a framework to be a fair one. So what is secularism? How do we define it? And where does it fit in our complex and religiously divided world? Hello, my name is Andrew Copson. I'm the Chief Executive of Humanists UK and President of the International Humanist and Ethical Union. And my latest book is called Secularism, published by Oxford University Press, about politics, religion and freedom. Really well done on the book, Andrew. Um, it's a very illuminating read and very measured, I might add, too, which always helps. Um, I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can play it by ear from there. Is humanism um, an issue to life, do you think, kind of an intellectual direction of sorts or a way of looking at the world? I think, well, the word humanism, as we use it today, describes a set of values and beliefs which together make up a, a coherent approach to life, a, a worldview. And, you know, many long books of uh, multiple volumes have been written about exactly what uh, that humanism means. But I think, you know, minimally, it's an approach to life that says that this universe is a natural phenomenon. There's no second layer to it where there might be gods or goblins or ghosts or whatever. That our morality doesn't come from outside humanity, but from inside ourselves and that we have to make our moral choices in the here and now, in the context that we find ourselves in, not by following rules or commandments or authority. And that 
in the absence of any discernible meaning or purpose to the universe, it's human beings in our lives that make meaning uh, ourselves and, and together. And that sort of this-worldly uh, approach to life, prizing welfare and fulfillment of human beings and other animals, of course, that can also suffer, is what, is what the word humanism really indicates today. And on a personal level, what does that mean in terms of your daily experience of life? How does being a humanist change how you live in the world or how you react to certain conditions in the world? Well, I was brought up a, a humanist uh, by a humanist uh, mother and uh, humanist grandparents, so I don't quite know uh, how it uh, would be different from anything else. I've got no big sort of conversion story to say how my life changed when, when I uh, came into these beliefs. I've always had them. Um, but what it does certainly is I suppose it makes me very mindful of our responsibilities. You know, I don't think that there's any sort of salvation for us from outside this, this, this planet and, and this humanity. So I think that, you know, humanist attitude personally for me makes me very mindful of my responsibilities, our bigger responsibilities. I think it also makes me feel very connected, uh, connected both to other people, you know, who are, we're all part of the same human family, uh, literally, biologically, that's true. Um, and I think also it makes me feel connected more to this planet. I mean, I think, you know, uh, lots of religious people think that sort of human beings are a very special, you know, essential creation by some god or whatever. Um, but for me, I, I think that the fact that we're the product of this planet, uh, of this environment, of nature, that makes, that's the sort of specialness that I see in human beings. And I, so I feel sort of very at home in, in this world. Um, very much caring about what happens to it in the future and very connected to other people and very aware of my sense of responsibility, I think. Uh, I think that's how, how it affects my life anyway. So tell me, Andrew, has secularism always been controversial, do you think? Yes, yeah, secularism certainly always has been controversial. So um, by secularism, obviously, we mean uh, you know, the separation of religious institutions from state institutions and uh, you know, the, the maximising of freedom of uh, conscience for people. Uh, you know, the state not telling them what to think and believe and so on. Um, and, of course, that's always been extremely controversial. In the past and also today, uh, governments, uh, monarchs, of course, but also any sort of government, even democratic governments, quite often do want to tell people what to think, tell people what to believe, uh, control people in various ways. And religious institutions almost always want to do the same. And so there's a great temptation for religious institutions and state institutions to get into bed with each other and to, to mix themselves up together, um, you know, because they're obviously maximising uh, their power. Um, and when people start getting opposed to that, when they organise to oppose that, when they have you know, revolutions, as we've seen in the history, of, of, especially in the West, but all over the world, to try and separate church and state or religion and state, um, then, of course, that's controversial because people in power um, want to keep it. And one of the ways that they've learned uh, power can be best exercises if you can control not just people's bodies but their minds um, and that's what you know non-secular states uh, try to do so secularism as a as a, a way of increasing freedom as, as a liberation um, as an empowerment of ordinary people to make the choices that perhaps state and church don't want them to make has been controversial for that reason you write in your introductions that this book is not intended as an argument for secularism, but as an introduction to it. And you preface it by saying something on the lines of religion and politics are notoriously, um, you know, two topics, um, you know, that can be quite divisive in polite yeah. uh, company. So how do you see it all? Well, I mean, this book is intended to be, 
um, an informative and balanced introduction, as you say. I mean, obviously, I am uh, a secularist personally. I think that a secular state is the best way to treat religion and politics in the, in the, in the cause of freedom. Um, but the starting point for writing the book um, was that it should be an objective, as far as possible objective, uh, and informative introduction to the topic rather than that it should be an argument for secularism. And I think the reason why uh, an, a balanced introduction to the topic was needed is because secularism is a, a concept today that um, around the world is under threat, and it's under threat in the same way that democracy is under threat or human rights are under threat more generally. But unlike democracy and human rights, secularism isn't really very well understood. It doesn't feature on school curriculums, even when studying politics. It doesn't even feature really on, on many university curriculums where uh, politics is being studied. So secularism is sort of unknown, um, and that means that uh, there's a double threat to it, because not only is it under attack, like other liberal concepts that I've just mentioned, it's also very poorly defended, because many people don't understand it, don't know about it, and so on and so forth. So the book was intended really to uh, inform uh, readers who uh, maybe want to know more clearly what secularism just is, because they haven't got an idea at the moment. And I think that that's, I mean, that's why it includes chapters, of course, that give the arguments against secularism as well as the arguments in favour of secularism. And I, I hope that people uh, will read it and come to their own view, and that by defining secularism, by talking about it clearly, it'll just help us have more you know, focused and intelligent and friendly conversations about it. Well, does secularism mean essentially neutrality or is that a bit misguided? Because some people would mm. see it as essentially this kind of fair play neutral position on all religious matters. But mm. that's not really what it is. Sure it's not. Well, no, that's right. I mean, the, the secular state is not just sort of completely vacuous, you know, completely neutral on everything. The secular state has clear uh, policy aims. And in the book, I use a, a definition of uh, secularism and the secular state that's given by the French academic uh, Charles Babro, and he says that secularism has three parts. So the first part is the separation of religious institutions from state institutions and no domination of, of one set of institutions over the other, um, and that's the part that you know most people recognise. The second part, though, is just as important, and it's about the state trying to guarantee as much freedom of thought and conscience and religion and belief for its citizens as possible. Um, of course, these things are always limited by the rights and freedoms of others, but as much freedom uh, in that area of life as is possible. And the third aspect is um, that the state should treat people equally, uh, regardless of their religious or non-religious worldview. So separation, freedom and equal treatment really are the, are the different aspects of secularism. Now, you know, a state that actively wants to maximise freedom, actively wants to achieve equality, it's not neutral. It's taking a very firm uh, position on those important topics. Where I think the false charge of attempted neutrality comes from is because secularism does try not to be neutral, but to sort of raise the state above the level of religious controversy. You know, Thomas Jefferson, who was one of the presidents of the United States, one of the founding fathers, uh, a secularist, um, he, he was asked what view he thought the, the, the state should take of religious controversies, religious conflicts, and he said that what the state should do is ignore them. Um, and that's what the secular state really tries to do. It tries to lift it, not take a side in the sort of religious uh, sectarian controversies that might uh, be matters of social debate um, and where people might divide socially, but, you know, 
we don't want things to divide politically because if they divide politically and if a state takes a side, um, then, of course, we risk exclusion, sectarianism, discord. Uh, the history of Europe shows civil civil war even. Yeah, and then if you look at what happened in Turkey um, mm. then and, and look at the present state, it all becomes particularly miserable, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the consequence, you know, one of the biggest arguments for secularism, actually, I mean, there are lots of philosophical, intellectual arguments for secularism about freedom and rights and so on, but one of the uh, most obvious arguments for secularism is, you know, we can all see what happens when it's not there. You know, we can all see what happens when societies become divided along uh, sectarian lines, uh, when, you know, the human rights uh, to freedom of conscience and so on are uh, violated. Uh, you get a spiral of uh, oppression, uh, you know, social disharmony. And like you say, we see in Turkey what, what happens there. Societies can split down the middle and things can become very violent very quickly. Andrew, you bring up a very interesting project. It's called the Religion and State Project, based out of Israel by a guy called Jonathan Fox. And he has analysed and categorised and I suppose described uh, religions in, I think, about 177 countries. Mm. And he's, 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 he, he feels very strongly that, you know, secularism is in a very um, precarious state around the world. And it's not just mm. in these fault-line countries. Do you agree with him on that? Yes, I think his, I mean, there are some problems with Fox's methodology. Sometimes what he counts as religious freedom, uh, I wouldn't uh, count as the same thing. But what his great achievement is, is to have uh, created an enormous index, essentially, um, a set of measurements um, that tell us not just uh, how, how much religious freedom, how much freedom of conscience there is uh, in a country in law, but how much there is in practice, because he analyzes as well as laws, you know, policies and state attitudes um, across various different areas like education, um, you know, public law and, and so on. And what he demonstrates, I think, you know, pretty uh, unambiguously and irrefutably is that uh, if there's been any change in the last 10 years since he, since, you know, he's, he's measured, he's created this index and the scores for different countries uh, very recently and 10 years before that as well. And what he... Uh, tracks over the course of that decade is that the, if there's been any change uh, in, in the world, it is away from secularism. So there have been a few isolated incidents of, of countries becoming, some countries becoming more secular. Um, Fiji, for example, Nepal, um, Iraq to some extent. Um, but often they're countries that were uh, already very secular anyway, like Sweden, for example, which is one of the countries that in that 10-year period became more secular. And Far more countries than that um, have, have become less secular. Um, and in general, um, even uh, countries uh, you know, where things were already quite non-secular have become even less so. So uh, what Fox's work uh, demonstrates, and like I say pretty, I think, irrefutably, um, is that in the real world, um, in the states of the real world, um, there is a very low level of secularism generally. Now, I mean, to some extent, of course, we know that. We know that secularism is an ideal. And we know that there is no state in the world that has perfectly achieved separation and freedom and equal treatment. Um, but in the past, certainly in the 20th century, I think a lot of people would have assumed that although that was the case and we don't live in a perfect world, the movement was towards secularism um, and that the future would be uh, of more secular states than we had in the past. And what Fox's work demonstrates is that that's, uh, that's you, not the case. Andrew, you pitch up a very interesting question. You, you, you ask, does a secular presumption disguise religious assumptions? Mm. Will you tell me? Well, it's a very, it is a very good question, and I think it's, uh, it's one that I'm 
you know, undecided on myself. The, so the claim of many people uh, who are critics of secularism, especially sort of Western liberals who are critics of secularism, um, is that while secularism claims to be objective, claims to be a framework that can uh, contain uh, citizens within a state of all different religions and beliefs, in fact, it's full of uh, implicit biases and prejudices um, that are down to its historical origins. So these critics of secularism say, uh, on a big level, you know, for example, they say secularism is, is a product in broad terms of a, a Christian culture, uh, and, and, and after that, a, a sort of humanist enlightenment culture from the 18th century onwards. And that culture um, is unshared by everyone in the world today. Um, and because secularism is a product of this uh, Christian and then humanist uh, culture, it's therefore unsuitable for everybody, and secularists shouldn't pretend it's universal. And the sort of assumptions they say it contains, which aren't universally shared, are things like the distinction between public and private. So uh, an anti-secularist making this argument might say, you know, secularism assumes that there can be a distinction between public and private, but there are lots of uh, societies in the world where that distinction is either not the same as the one that is developed in the West, or maybe doesn't exist at all. And then um, there are uh, critics of secularism who will say that uh, secularism assumes uh, that religion is a thing that is separable uh, from politics. And they will say, well, okay, so maybe Christianity and the, the human philosophy of the Enlightenment um, you know, can be separable for politics. But in some religions, and they often point to Islam at this point, the belief that it is separable from politics does not exist. And religion is a, is a comprehensive, all-encompassing attitude, not just to um, life, personal life and private life and, and life after death, but also to political life and social life. And so these um, critics of secularism say that it is, far from being neutral, full of assumptions. Now, I think that's, that's partly true, of course, um, at the big level. But what these critics often uh, avoid is the truth that Secularism is not just a Western construct. You know, secularism, uh, the biggest secular state in, in, in the world is India. Mm. And India isn't secular just because it was colonized by Europeans. There are indigenous ideas of separation of religion from politics and equal treatment and, and freedom of choice uh, that predate uh, Western involvement and interference in India. So it's not true that secularism is wholly a Western construct. Where I think that the critics of secularism who say it's not really neutral and contains biases are on to uh, a bit of a stronger uh, argument is not when they criticize those bigger ideas in secularism, um, but when they point to perhaps some of the uh, practical issues. Now, this, is, uh, this was one of the first tests of American secularism. So in, in the United States Constitution, there's a, a clause, part of the First Amendment, that says that uh, the United States won't limit citizens' free exercise of religion. This was tested very early on in the 19th century by Mormons, Mormons uh, who went to court because they had been convicted of the crime of bigamy. And their argument uh, was that they shouldn't be convicted of the crime um, of bigamy because their religious beliefs said that they should uh, have uh, many wives, more than one wife. Um, and the Constitution guaranteed them free exercise of religion. And therefore, who was the state to try and uh, impose what the Mormons said were unshared religious beliefs, Protestant or Catholic religious beliefs, about marriage being between one man and a woman on them? You know, why should they as Mormon citizens uh, have their free exercise of religion limited 
to get into line with the religious assumptions about marriage of, of another group. And I think that that's a far more difficult question uh, for secularists to answer than the bigger ones about, you know, uh, um, is it just a Western framework and so on and so forth. Um, how do secularists answer them? Well, I think it's important for, for secularists in answering these critics uh, to admit straight away that secularism isn't perfect. If secularism uh, doesn't pretend to be perfect. In fact, it's part of the argument for it is that it's better than the alternative. Um, and I think that's an important point for uh, secularists uh, to make. But I think it's also the case that if you look at something like uh, the Mormon uh, example in the United States, it's not necessarily secularism um, that is preventing uh, Mormons uh, from having more than one wife or, or Mormon women from, from marrying uh, the same man. It's, it, it's more likely these days to be arguments about gender equality um, or the human rights of, of, of others uh, than it is about secularism. If you think of things like um, the refusal of uh, some bakers to bake a cake uh, that promoted same-sex marriage, some people said, oh, look, this is you know, secularists trying to force their agenda onto uh, Christians. But in fact, again, it wasn't secularism uh, that said that uh, those bakers should bake uh, cakes equally for all people. It was laws on equality um, for LGBT people. So, you know, quite often it's not secularism that's actually uh, implicated in some of these uh, cases that critics of secularism uh, line up. It's often something else, some other political agenda. I'm just wondering, how big a uh, challenge is uh, migration to the secularist agenda? I presume it's a pretty heavy challenge, considering what we've seen in the last few years. Yes, it is a heavy challenge, um, especially, I think, for, for European states that want to uh, be secular. I mean, I don't think it's such a big challenge for the United States, for example, you know, a country that's sort of built on, uh, built on constant uh, migration and a country where, you know, the Constitution is, uh, very much lays out uh, freedom of religion from the beginning. But I think it is a problem for lots of European states. And I think that if you take a state like France, so French secularism, uh, the introduction of French secularism was extremely controversial um, throughout the 19th century w with Catholics. And even in the 20th century was extremely controversial uh, with Catholics. But broadly speaking, by you know the mid to late uh, 20th century, most French people, whether Catholic or not, um, were reconciled to it. They thought that secularism was the best, you know, the secular republic was the best model um, for them. Now, that, you know, you might argue is, is pretty easy for a generally homogenous culture to um, agree to, because although, of course, not, you know, French society is um, made up, was made up at that point of, you know, Catholics and non-Catholics, um, by and large, you know, they were all... Um, ethnically French. Most people were ethnically French. Um, and so the religion that secularism, religions secularism had to deal with were, you know, basically different sorts of uh, Christianity. Now, what migration does um, is introduces into uh, states that have had um, very settled patterns of religious and non-religious belonging and belief, introduces into those societies whole new um, religious dynamics. And it's no surprise, I think, that the secularism of, 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 of the Republic of France um, has been most challenged and tested and most controversial um, since Muslims began to be a significant feature of French society. Now, this is partly, of course, because 
there are you know social and ethnic conflicts uh, when populations uh, change uh, and move, um, but there are also ideological and intellectual ones. You know the sort of arguments we were talking a moment ago about why secularism isn't really neutral um, in the eyes of anti-sectorists definitely apply um, in France because um, what is seen as uh, let's say a law. Let's take the example of the law, um, the new recent law um, that bans signs of uh, you know religiosity um, in public schools in France, uh, state schools. Well, um, that could be seen as a, a general law, but obviously it bites down harder on those young people whose religion demands public symbols. Now, if you're a Christian. Uh, young person, uh, and the secular law of your country says that you can't have visible religious symbols, well, that's probably fine, because if you've got anything, you've probably got just a cross on a chain, or, you know, under your shirt or, or, or whatever. But if you're a young Muslim woman, um, and you feel, and you're a young Muslim woman who feels that uh, a headscarf is uh, necessary, not all Muslim women do, of course, but um, if you're one who does, then plainly the law um, that prohibits religious symbols uh, visible religious symbols, is biting down much harder on you in practice than it is on your uh, Christian or Jewish or non-religious contemporaries. And so, you know, that, that, is, that is at the root of it. That is, at the root of that is a problem created by, as you say, migration. Migration offers other um, challenges to secularism as well, today, especially today. So what secularism tends to depend on uh, is a feeling of common citizenship amongst people within state that, uh, you know, the secular state um, that uh, wants to implement these sorts of, um, this sort of equal treatment. Now, one of the things that, uh, one of the features of recent migration is that if you think about migration, let's say 100 years ago, let's say into the UK, and when people migrated into the UK about 100 years ago, they basically integrated with the society that was in the UK, and they, they did that for all sorts of reasons, I'm sure. But one of the big reasons is that having moved to the UK, they had infrequent, if any, contact with the country that they had uh, come from. In today's world, um, where there are such, uh, such globalised uh, communications, um, not only social media, but also traditional broadcast media that are coming in by satellite from all over the world, and also tra travel is, is easier, faster, cheaper, um, even over long distances, what you get today is even second and third generation migrants from uh, other places still feeling as connected, if not in some cases more connected to their, the, the place that they may never even have been from, you know, it's their grandparents who are from it, um, but they don't uh, have... Um, a complete affiliation with the country uh, of which they are a citizen, uh, the European country of which they are a citizen. And that, of course, is, is, is a complication um, for secularism, because one thing that secularism requires is that everyone should be feeling a sort of a, a primary nationality um, to the, the secular state that is attempting to hold the line. And, and that's just one uh, example of uh, you know, dozens of issues that migration raises uh, for secularism. I imagine another complication, Andrew, for secularism would be in relation to medical ethics. 
Yeah. Because whether you have a religious disposition or not, or whether you're an atheist or not, or whatever you are, um, it's a that's a very tricky world to navigate and to, um, to you know, give absolutes to. And everyone has a very personal opinion on a law. Let's look at assisted dying, for example. Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, I mean, that's exactly right. I think that assisted dying is uh, one of the easier. Uh, actually from from the point of view of secularism um, because one of the things that you know secularism wants to secularists want to achieve um, is freedom of choice for, for all people um, up to the point where it starts interfering with other people's freedom of choice now things like life or death issues you know things like uh, abortion or assisted dying really um, are all about an individual's choice and so unless you could make arguments that the availability of assisted dying in law would lead to large numbers of people being coerced into uh, ending their own lives, which is one of the arguments that opponents of assisted dying against the evidence uh, claim, uh, you know, deploy uh, to try and prevent assisted dying being made legal. Um, but unless you believe that, then assisted dying is sort of pretty easy from a sectorist point of view because you would just say, right, well, free freedom of choice should be maximised. Um, and therefore, this is something that should be available. And if you don't want, if you don't think assisted dying is good, um, you know, don't have an assisted death. Um, but let other people who want it want to do it. The, the harder uh, issues for the secular state to deal with um, are, are ones of conscientious uh, exemption. So when an individual tries to say, uh, according to my conscience, um, I shouldn't be forced. To do this, uh, X, Y, or whatever. Um, so, the cases that we've seen, for example, in London of registrars who uh, don't want to solemnise gay marriages, same-sex marriages, um, or as we were discussing a moment ago, um, bakers who don't want to bake cakes for same-sex marriages is often about sex, you know, one way or another. Um, this sort of uh, hard, harder choice. Um, in those, or, or people who don't want, 